I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. You know, even though someone like Ed Ross, who played Victor Rosta in that movie, would seem to have a reputation of just playing bad guys, especially Russians who are also bad guys. You're right. He's got to be probably just like one of the nicest guys ever. That's a, that's true of a lot of people who play villains. I know that that's the case with, what is his name? I don't want to say Jack Gleason or Jack, because it sounds like Jackie Gleason, but the kid who played uh, Joffrey on Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Is the sweetest kid in the world, but he played such a psychopath so convincingly <laughs> that I think this is something that people encounter is that it's really hard for a lot of fans of something to turn that off and and be able to see him as anything other than this just monster. I think, I think the, uh, what is it I was hearing um, Stephen Tobolowsky talk about playing because i think uh he played a villain in like christopher lambert movie maybe it was fortress was it fortress that tobolowski was the the jailkeeper in i don't know but tobolowski has played a lot of things and not too many of them have been bad guys because he's clearly not the type he doesn't have the physiognomy of a movie villain necessarily um but his take on playing villains were was that um the sort of actor consensus is, is oh it must be you know or the not actor consensus is it must be fun playing a villain because then you get to you know chew the scenery go over the top and he said well no if you are an actor who takes it seriously it's actually not very fun because you have to spend a lot of time brooding and thinking evil thoughts and if you're really if you're really committed to doing it he said no you generally don't have a very good time playing a villain if you're really trying to be a villain you uh, know um and i was like and i was like i don't i don't wouldn't don't ever normally think of Tobolowsky as being a method actor necessarily but i was like that's a weird perspective coming from it's also kind of weird jovial it, bald guy Stephen it assumes that, that bad people feel bad for being bad and no, I, I think he's just talking about the things that you have to insert into your mind oh, to be able to project that character. Yeah, I guess what I'm saying, though, is I don't think that bad people feel bad about those things, where Stephen no. Pobolowski does. Yeah. Where, yeah. if you're like a true sociopath, like, if you're the Joker, I don't think that... If jo- you're Steven Seagal. The Joker isn't <laughs> tormented by his horrible thoughts. I think he's amused by them. <laughs> I think it's the fact that some people just don't treat humans like humans, and... Um, to- Stephen Tobolowsky is just a nice person yeah. and he doesn't like thinking about killing or brutalizing people and that's to his credit it means that I'd much rather spend time with Stephen Tobolowsky than the Joker <laughs> but talking about just like fitting actors into certain kinds of roles that Stephen Tobolowsky just doesn't seem like a bad guy sometimes that works it's kind of like every movie where they've made uh, Denzel Washington the bad guy like Training Day yeah I think that it works well because you're so used to seeing him play these sort of upright, heroic roles that when he does it, John Goodman has the same thing, that you know him as Dan Connor, Mm -hmm. but then you see him in a movie where he's a villain, like a really scary villain, something like Barton Fink is kind of shocking. Yeah. And I think it works because you suddenly realize John Goodman is a guy who could probably break you over his knee. I was just thinking 10 Cloverfield Lane, too, which I was like... Oh, God. Like, yeah, he's great in that. It's like, they so, he's so fucking scary. There's oh. a sense that when he's unhinged that he could really 
mess you up and you're like oh oh my i love the oh brother where art thou the bible salesman yeah. yes <laughs> what uh, what uh um talking about sort of atypical actors playing villains um oh shit just had it in it escaped my mind keep going but uh but again it's it's you can play against type you yeah. can you can be somebody who is probably begging like mads mickelson was in rogue one yeah, and I bet you the one thing that he asked them before on anything is like, "Yeah, I want to be in a Star I Wars movie." I want to cackle evilly. Can <laughs> I? Can I please not be a villain? Yeah. Just, can I please, please not be a villain? Because he's he's got bad guy face. He's yeah. got the same way that like Terry Tagawa, Terry Tagawa has bad guy face. Mm-hmm. That um, Michael Ironside has bad guy face. Sure. There's something about them that just goes, "Oh man." Um, what is the other guy who's got bad guy face? He's playing, I don't know the actor's name, but, uh, he plays Captain Lorca on Star Trek, Star Trek Discovery. Oh yeah. Yeah. But he was a bad guy in Harry Potter. Yep. He was Draco Malfoy's dad. Michael Wincott, my, my favorite, uh, bad guy, bad guy face. Yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of bad guy face. And I think on one level, if you're that actor, having bad guy face that's job security. <laughs> so you, cause you can do that uh, as uh, Michael Ironside proves, you can do that well into your sixties. Yeah. You can yeah. just keep playing that kind of like hard assed, like cruel. There's something mean about your face that you can turn into a villain. Cause it's kind of like you got a scalp. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there's something about that that just works, but it's gotta be annoying if as an actor where your job is that you can put yourselves into other people and become other people mm-hmm. that if you're only asked to become one person over and over again, it's like Tommy Lee Jones after Men in Black. That's the only character right. he gets to play. Well, that's why I really enjoyed speaking of another Coen Brothers movie, uh, Tom Hanks being the bad guy in Lady Killers, which I think is clearly not one of the best Cohen. Have either of you seen it? No. Oh my god, he plays a Southern dandy who is a bank robber and a con artist, and he has the most absurd. He basically has like a he has like a Colonel Sanders white tuxedo with a little bolo tie on it, and he's got this ridiculous mustache and goatee, and he has this really. Uh, he's this really uh, affected like southern accent and he tries to dupe over a poor old lady to use her basement so he can make a tunnel and make do a bank robbery <laughs> it is awesome it is so great that is literally the exact same scheme from short circuit 2 <laughs> <laughs> no i mean I, I even though that movie i think is not well regarded for the coen brothers movies no. i think it's awesome to see that happen when i think the coen brothers are actually good at that every time that they've ever had um george clooney they've always tried to use george Clooney against type is what is George Clooney naturally except he's for cool. intolerable cruelty which he's fully on type in that movie oh I, I haven't yeah. seen that one oh. um I think they just wrote that not directed it I'm not sure no that was a Gone Brothers movie okay I didn't see that it's weird there's like these these holes in my uh Cohen filmography let me guess you've never seen the man who wasn't there either I haven't oh wow wow that movie is actually not available on Blu-ray, which is crazy. Weird. So um, the one that I really love Clooney for is a Coen Brothers movie that I don't think anyone but me saw, which was Burn After Reading. <laughs> oh, yeah. I like <laughs> that one. Great. That's a great movie. I love uh, George Clooney in that movie because he does everything to undermine being George Clooney. Yeah. He's like fidgety about uh, cheese and he's just sort of uncomfortable in all these scenes that he's really big on, he's paranoid and kind of twitchy. And I mean, he's still George Clooney, but it's amazing what you can do to sort of undermine that where it doesn't feel like you're watching this handsome movie star. You're watching this character and it, 
it actually works. And I think uh, Brad Pitt had the same thing in 12 Monkeys. Sure. Where I think he tried to ugly himself up as much as possible because he just did like Legends of the Fall a couple of years before that. <laughs> and he's just like, I don't want to be just the pretty person. And I think that a lot of times actors just need that one role that lets people go, no, I'm not just a pretty person. I'm also an actor. Like Charlize Theron has gotten a lot of those roles recently where she's like, no, she's a badass. She can do all these things. She can actually act. She's not just pretty. And it feels like I'm getting dangerously close to the gravity well that is Charlie Hunnam. <laughs> but I'm going to try to pull away from that. Um, but yeah, it seems... The Hunnam abyss. It is. Yes. And again, there are a lot of actors. Sorry, Charlie Hunnam. I bet you're a really nice guy. Yeah. But, I mean, you're a handsome guy. I understand why you look good on screen. But there really doesn't seem to be a lot to your performance aside from that. That's the difference between you and Brad Pitt is I can't see Charlie Hunnam in 12 Monkeys in my head. So, so speaking of actors that are playing against type or actors that are playing villains, I think I talked to both of you about this. So, Duncan Jones's new movie got released on Netflix, a movie by the name of Mute. So, you guys both saw Mute. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. So, feel free to spoil me. I actually don't care. So, Paul Rudd plays, ostensibly, he plays the villain of the movie. And he's the villain of the movie is, this is in the near future um he is a sort of a surgeon for the mob and he has a partner and they're working out there they're working out of where where is is it it's not tokyo where is it uh berlin oh it's berlin that's right futuristic berlin and the main character the the titular mute is a boy who was amish who got had an accident that chewed up his voice box um and he can't he can't speak, and so he's a bartender in sort of this weird cyberpunk future. He has a girlfriend who goes missing, and it becomes sort of a noir mystery. <laughs> Interspersed with this is Paul Rudd, and is it Justin Theroux? I think is the is his partner, who kind of are um, the two. Who are the two characters? Hawkeye and Honeycut from the Mash movie. That's exactly what that's, I thought about. That's yeah, basically what they are. But they work for the bad guys, and uh, Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd plays a guy who, in the beginning, he's got a daughter. He's kind of he's he's always shit talking the Russians that are that are to pay his salary or whatever, and you don't actually understand what he is to the movie. Is he good? Is he bad? Until the very end, and then you realize that he is he is uh, terrible because he killed someone who was important to the plot, and he's unrepentant. But the the movie takes a impossibly ridiculous third act turn where the partner, the sort of uh, B J Honeycut partner, um, is a pedophile. And they have one scene where uh, Paul Rudd's character sort of figures this out and confronts him. And it's like, I will fucking kill you if I hear this happening again. And the next is a smash cut to they're riding in a Jeep through through Berlin. And they're like doing... Partying. Yeah, yeah. partying, going, woo, we're partying. And the movie is about... If you're going to have pedophilia as a as a uh, as sort of an element in your movie you need to treat it a little bit more seriously and i think they do it just to make him the the you know the last boss of the movie so the 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 hero has a way to dispatch him no i disagree so the the pedophilia thing it, the whole idea is the reason that he doesn't just kill his friend is they have they have the there's the bromance going on through yeah. the, the whole movie and it is it's it's, the, it's, it's unclear the, it's whether the or not they it's whether or not they are unclear whether or not they are actual lovers or whether or not they just speak to each other they say honey and stuff yeah um just just the their entire dynamic is in there's sexual tension and they're both wisecracking and likable this this is a movie where the terrible people are the are the most fun they are the ones that you kind of 
Uh, they're, they're funny and well, they're, they're charming. The most, and they're, they're the most interesting part of this movie because the the, the protagonist can't speak and. Um, it's the same guy as the scars Alexander Skarsgård, the same guy who was the the clown in the in, in it. Um, he's great. Yeah, like his, I thought his, his performance is really strong. His face is great, but you but he the movie did not do enough with a guy who was mute to be able to sort of rise to the level of what Paul Rudd turning his sort of amped up into 120 percent, which I think was I thought was the strongest part of the movie. But then they had to turn him into a bad guy and turn his 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 other guy into another even larger bad guy. Um, by raising the stakes with pedophile takes off with the daughter. So the, but that that was the that was the payoff though. So he betrays his friend. You have you have these two the the two villain ish characters that are the sort of carrying the weight of the movie and that are so much fun to watch and are wisecracking and things like that. It turns out they're both awful awful people, uh, which turns them into something for the protagonist to sort of struggle against. Um, but there's that moment when he turns on his friend. So Paul Rudd uh, has a final confrontation with uh, what's the main character's name? Leo. Leo. Uh, yeah. Yes. He, the, he, the Amish mute. The, the Amish mute. So they have he has the sh- has the showdown, and uh, Leo puts a knife through his throat. Uh, and so then when uh, Duck comes home to see what is it? Cactus is uh, c- comes to see his friend dying. He has this. He has this moment where he's like, "Ooh, you know, I know I'm a great surgeon, but I don't think I can save you, and you know, I'm not going to take you to the hospital because that's going to be like cops and things I don't want to deal with." Uh, and there's a there's a moment of betrayal um, where he he is he is turned on his friend, uh, and now you know that he's going to take charge of the daughter, and the the threat of that is is greatly increased of by this. But I mean that. So it, I think it serves a purpose. It's not just it's not just pedophilia as like a thrown in shocker. Um, I, I think it. I think it does. But like I said, I think that he he doesn't do anything particularly villainous except to be Paul Rudd's wingman, and until that point. Well, I mean, and, and I also think that's also pedophilia is something that you want to be putting in a movie, even if it's a big heightened reality genre movie like this. You want to be tiptoeing around it a little more carefully, right? So they, they do kind of build up to it. So it starts out with it's uh, Paul Paul Rudd. Is actually a very loving father. Like he 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 comes off weirdly as kind of a good father, despite the fact that the circumstances that his daughter is constantly in is surrounded by houses yeah. And- so she she's being her babysitters are all prostitutes, and she hangs out in criminal criminal areas and with criminal elements. You know, while she just draws in her her picture book the whole time. Um, Paul Rudd by putting her in these and uh, so there's a thing where Paul Rudd's partner Duck sleeps with goes to the whorehouse. To sleep with the babysitter intentionally because she looks like she's seventeen. Yeah, yeah. and th- there's that thing where he wants you find out that he wants her to look young, and it's like a little hint. Then you have a scene later when you find out that she- he works with uh, does like advanced cybernetic implants for children. He Pros- specializes prosthetics for children. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> Mike's just totally <laughs> nonplussed by this entire movie. Uh, I, well, the difficult part that I have is is the overarching thing, apart from, I think, the pedophilia thing being an incredibly divisive element in the movie, even if it does serve to, you know, make the payoff at the end, right? The whole payoff for Leo as a character. Duncan Jones, there's also the element of Sam Rockwell's character from Moon oh, has several sick. cameos in this movie, but so they are in the same universe, but the relationship between the struggle that Sam Rockwell's character... Oh, hi, Sully. <laughs> no. The relationship between Sam Rockwell's character and what happens in that movie and this movie couldn't be further f- apart from each other. In fact, they're just sort of thrown in there like, oh, isn't it 
isn't it nice that they're isn't it nice that they're in the same universe that makes it more interesting but here's my my thought this did not need to be a sci-fi movie in fact this there are no there's no point at which a sci-fi element of this world um makes this movie more interesting or more unique okay so my take on it the thing is that him being mute cuts him off from his environment and also him being raised Amish cuts him off from the technological utopia or dystopia that he he lives in. The futuristic elements serve to create a a world that is increasingly, there are, the reason that he's such an outcast is because he's the only mute, because there are no deaf people, there are no mute people. It's because he was raised Amish that he is, his mom didn't want him to have this surgery when he was young that could have provided him with a voice. You still could have done the same situation in present-day Berlin. No, but in present-day Berlin, there are people who can't speak. It's not not so alienating to be technologically inept and to not have a voice. I mean, like, I'm not saying it isn't alienating. Right. But putting it in a future setting creates a world that is much more wired and much more dependent on your ability to, to, to speak and communicate. And so the fact that it sets him outside of the world in the way that it does in this movie, I, I did think that it wore some of the sci-fi trappings, a, a lot of its derivative, and it wore some of it lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that. I like that people's houses didn't all have to be completely cyberpunked out. Yeah. They just looked like a, a natural living environment. I, I haven't seen the movie, but I do say that I like those kind of elements. I think we said this about the movie Logan. Yeah, that Logan takes place in the future as well, but there's only a handful of things that tells you that it's the future. Right, but it isn't like Back to the Future Two, where we go to like flying cars and. Well, the difference here is that there are flying cars. That it looks like you're going through Johnny Mnemonic's The Internet. That's oh. what it looks like being in the world, and it's like from a set design perspective, it's awesome. It looks kind of like there's a lot. Obviously, it owes a lot to Blade Runner because it looks a lot like the sort of layered future of Blade Runner, mm-hmm. but also with the sort of like constant holographic screens and colors everywhere which is how you would imagine uh, project forward we're going now i have no gripes against that my gripe is is that the movie is boring which is the only one unforgivable sin of a movie and i and i was hoping that duncan jones would sort of would do something to connect the threads of the sam rockwell character being that lonely guy you know who becomes the most probably one of the most special guys in the whole universe um with the sort of lonely guy outcast outsider in the form of leo have some sort of thread that connects them and and make the universe make sense and i think that it was just sort of thrown in there as being like hey you like this you'll also like this it's it's an easter egg right like it's more than an easter egg because they they do it twice He's in it twice. And in fact, he shows his double twi- in, in one of the scenes, right? Right. So he has a whole bunch of clones in a courtroom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, it, I must have been... I watched this late at night. I didn't <laughs> realize that the director... Until uh, I looked it up on IMDb afterwards, I didn't realize it was Duncan Jones. Mm-hmm. I didn't make the connection to Moon, which I love, um, which is funny because it's pretty obvious. Um, I don't think that it needed to be tied together. I don't... I don't is this a Marvel thing? The need to have shared universes? I mean, this has been a thing that we've done in movies with, like the Quentin Tarantino movies have connective tissue, but they've never been a big part of the yeah, plot. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're Red Apple, the Red Apple cigarette universe, right? Or characters have the same last name. He tends to reuse that. And you can say either it is or it isn't, but to actually explicitly make this part of a different movie, is that necessary? Does that does that damage the other movie there? I mean, it's neat to see Captain America and Iron Man team up, but is it necessary to do that with with a movie that 
has no intention of becoming a larger universe. I mean, I don't what what is that? Well, I mean, but, this was clearly a, this was a script that he had written very like in film school, I think. So he had he had been sort of saving this script on the back burner for a long time before he'd done his other ones. And um this was his first full feature movie by himself so moon and source code were all written by somebody else and directed by him so the the real disappointing part to me is 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 duncan jones someone who can be a great director but not a great writer director and i think that's you know that remains to be seen at this point i mean i loved moon moon is one of those movies that i think just kind of went under the radar for a lot of people that it's this neat little small scale sci-fi movie that has a twist, but I what I love the most about it is it's a twist that you learn in the first 20, 30 minutes. And then rather than make it like a Twilight Zone shocking ending, says, okay, what are the consequences of this twist? And make that the movie. I That's what I really loved about hmm. it, is that a lot of movies would just go, oh, what is the dark secret of him having this job on the moon? And he, why can't he go home? And what's going on? Why does he feel sick? And all that stuff. And saying, no, let's get right to that part, hit that twist, and now actually start asking questions and building a story around the twist rather than building it towards the twist. So Mm. there are movies like that. I think that's a great movie. And so he's got a good movie in him. Did he write Moon? No, he didn't write Moon or Source Code. So, So, well, maybe maybe that's not his thing as a writer. I mean, some people can do it, but... Sometimes people are really good at taking other people's material and elevating it. And yeah. sometimes people are really good at taking their own material and uh, elevating it. Or sometimes they can't come up with good material. And it's so, I mean, who knows? I, I've, I've looked up the reviews. I understand that you're right and I'm wrong. But I had fun with this movie. I'm glad I, you, re- I really enjoyed it. I'm I glad you that, did. And I wanted to like it a lot more than I did. I think, And maybe that was part of my reaction is I wanted it. I wanted it to be... I was like, fuck yeah, this sort of a cyberpunk story. Duncan Jones gets to do it. Like, I, I think I came in wanting to do it. Um, I Paul Rudd is really hit or miss for me. I think him him being groomed to be an action hero with Ant-Man was, even though I think it was done well, was a weird turn for Paul Rudd. And uh, I've gotten, I've grown to get really, really tired of the, um, who's the comedy guy who owns everything now? What's Talking that? about Judd Apatow? Yeah, I've gotten really sick of sort of the Judd Apatow stable of comedy actors that have to be in everything. Um, and well, I, I can say that Paul Rudd as Ant-Man is still a Paul Rudd-style action hero. Sure. Rather than trying to make somebody who's not an action hero uh, sort of a comedic kind of voice. Like John Krasinski from John The Krasin- Office being yeah. in the... Jack Michael Ryan Bain. movie, yeah. you know, the idea of turning John Krasinski, who I'm really used to. I mean, I love John Krasinski, but yeah. when I think of John Krasinski, I think of him throwing a deadpan look at the camera <laughs> and with a goofy haircut. I mean, he's Jim. So it's a little bit weird. I mean, if you're going to make him into an action hero, you have to do something kind of similar to what they did with Paul Rudd as Ant-Man and make it Jim as an action hero. Yeah. Rather than try to pretend that that comedic element isn't there and that he's basically... Like, <laughs> that would be like trying to make... Mr. Bean, actual James Bond. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, instead of being sort of a parody of yeah. it, that you kind of you can. It's sort of I've heard the phrase "kidding on the square" that you're kidding, yeah. but you're not, but you're kidding, and that's a line you kind of have to be on with an actor like that. And sometimes you can pull it off and play it straight, like with Bruce Willis, who was a comedic actor who made it work in Die Hard. To the fact that people nowadays forget that 
the idea of him being cast as an action hero was kind of controversial at the time. Uh, or we, Will Smith in Independence Day. Can, they were can like, we, why can we talk about, about Brucey and Death Wish? Can we, have we talked okay. about Death Wish? I saw Death Wish Oh, in you theaters. saw it? Oh, my God. Um, Holy shit. In, this is a, so I don't know if you know about the remake. So this is a remake with, with Bruce. Oh, Brucey. Um, Bruce Willis was in a Death Wish remake where he plays does he have the same character is it the same name is it Kinsey it's a, Paul Kiersey Paul so he Kiersey. plays the same character basically he yes, has a different it's Eli, job it's Eli Roth mm-hmm. so a guy who's known for making splatter gore torture porn movies essentially yeah I mean he, that's, so you think okay what is this going to be this, oh god did he do Hostel is that uh, I think he did, did Hostel Heather did Hostel he was one of the producers he's done a bunch of the Saw movies he did movies. Green Inferno so there's a lot of stuff that'll make you very uncomfortable this movie made me (laughs) uncomfortable but not in the way that those other ones did um i think that if you're going to get into the death wish remake living in the world that we live in now i think we can just say the magic word is tone deaf yeah well didn't the trailer have uh, acdc's back in black yeah it's like back in black and he's like loading up guns and you're like well this is not what death wish is well death uh, wish doesn't get a heroic heroic classic rock soundtrack well there's there's different kinds of movies about people who kill bad guys i mean we would just watch one and when you're watching sort of a cartoon action film with a cartoonish action star i mean arnold kills so many people in commando and terminator but he's not in the same sort of gritty universe or he's an outright villain uh the thing with the original death wish is that it's a an incredibly gritty drama it's not an action movie and it's about a liberal architect whose family is murdered and raped by criminals and how he essentially decides that compassion is something that he needs to grow out of. And he wanders the streets and the subways, um, baiting criminals into trying to mug him. So he shoots them and it doesn't play it as if this is just something a normal person does. The character to get to that point has to have a transformation. I mean, this is the same thing with the Punisher, that if Frank Castle becomes the Punisher, he has to change in an irreparable way. That the person that he was before is dead, and now that this story has started, he can't go back to being the person he was at the beginning. And I think that's where this movie falls flat, is that this movie has the same basic overarching plot. Paul Kiersey, in this case, is played by uh, Dr. Uh, Bruce Willis. And Bruce Willis is a guy whose family is murdered by criminals, uh, whereas his wife is shot and his daughter is put in a coma. And he does the same thing. He goes out at night and shoots a bunch of people. Paul Kiersey in the original movie is somebody who grew up around guns, but in college became a liberal and learned to sort of skew them and say, like, that's, violence is not the way to do this. You know, we have, we have to deal with serious more complicated issues like poverty and opportunity and, and racism and all, you know, normal human stuff that you would actually solve this problem with, not a middle-aged white guy with a gun and how he learns that that's all bullshit. And what he really needs to do is start murdering minorities and young people. Uh, because again, ultimately um, vigilante fiction is, is kind of a right wing dad fantasy. I'd love it, but it is such a problematic thing that I happen to love. And, and it's I, much harder to do in the present day than it is in 1978. Yeah. And when this movie was originally re- set to be released was in November, right after a mass shooting yeah. and they, they delayed it. 
And the new date ended up being right after another mass shooting. It's really hard to avoid these days, it seems like. God. So why did they have him use violence when they could have just used a Pepsi? Oh, like, yes. oh my God, yes. Solve all the world's problems. It treat everything like a hostess ad. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing that's so bizarre about this movie, too, is that... Um, Doesn't he have a YouTube channel or something? Doesn't he become famous on the internet? He becomes famous, famous on the internet, and yeah. people are, of course, debating him in a very superficial way, because the movie wants to get credit for being about a thing without taking any sort of a stance other than it's really cool to shoot bad guys. Um, Paul Kiersey is played by Bruce Willis does not play. He does not pay a, a psychic toll for the stuff that he does that. It doesn't bother him to kill people. It's not like a Walter White thing. If you look at Walter White over the course of breaking bad, the first time he kills somebody on that show, it takes him like three days and he has to be kind of drag taking and screaming and he feels really awful about it. But by the end of the series, because you've had this transformation, uh, Walter White can just shoot guys and he doesn't feel bad about it. But the thing with Walter White is that he can't go back to being chemistry teacher, Walter White anymore, that that person is broken by the things that he has done and the choices that he made. Paul Kiersey in this movie is just living his normal life with a secret identity as the vigilante. And then his, his uh, daughter comes out of the coma and he just quits. He just quits being the vigilante for a while. And it's like, no, um, you just shot a bunch of guys. You can't not pay for that. And it movie kind of treats it like it's just this little phase he went through for a while. And he can just pretend like that time never happened. Well, in fairness, those were bad guys. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's what you can't get away with anymore is that there is that 80s, uh, you know, thing in films of the time that as long as you establish that these are drug dealers or something like that, then there is no cost to whatever it is you want to do to them. And it's it's a little bit harder. You really have to be like a Nazi or, you know, you have to go out of your way to establish that people are irredeemable. Otherwise, you have to deal with that, that tally uh, t- t- to some extent. But the movie doesn't, it never treats it like it's costing Paul Kiersey anything to be this guy. That this is just a thing he does for a while. And it's it's basically it plays out the fantasy that these characters typically have in these movies. It's like, I'm just going to get my revenge and I can just go back to my life. And it works. He just he gets his revenge and goes back to his life. So and in the original Death Wish, uh, Kiersey becomes an aspirational figure and he, he sort of excites or incites um, fellow fellow citizens to become vigilantes themselves. Do they have that element in this movie? There are touches of it. There's yeah. like the closest thing to social commentary that happens in this movie, but it fails because it doesn't deal directly with Kiersey himself, which is that somebody tries to do what he does and gets shot doing it. And it's a lone element in the movie. It never gets touched on again. Um, if you want to see a much better version of this kind of movie, um, you should see Death Sentence that came out in like 2007 starring Kevin Bacon. <laughs> it's it's by, directed by James Wan, who would later oh. do like the Fast and the Furious sure. movies. But it's about like a businessman whose uh, son is killed in a uh, shooting at a gas station as part of like a gang initiation and it just fucks him up and his transformation into, um, this killer, uh, one, uh, starts a, an avalanche that destroys his whole family. He's the one who gets the rest of his family killed because he goes out and thinks that he can kill this one guy who killed his kid. And it's a Walter White thing where it's awkward and awful, where he's just like hanging around, basically stalking this neighborhood. And he's the reason that he gets known. And by the time he kills this guy almost on accident, because he fights with the guy and the guy falls on his own knife. 
And he's just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, I'm going to hide the body and stuff like that. But he's recognized enough around town that they retaliate on his family. And it's his transformation that he breaks down into being this person who becomes a he's a badass. But he's a guy that as soon as he gets his revenge, what the fuck is he going to do? He's just a psycho now. He's just this guy that feels nothing but pain. This isn't going to solve that. And it's about his self-destruction. And it's a movie that takes that seriously enough to go, this is what a normal person would become, that you can't just go back to being everyone's favorite doctor after this situation is over. And I think if you can take it seriously and do that, but that, that doesn't get past the fact that, again, we're talking about the problematic elements of this genre. We live in a very different time than even 2007. Well, that- I, I, I would argue that the genre still exists, but it exists as something like Jack Reacher. Well, I mean, then your government sanction, that's different. But I mean, no, terms- because going rogue, which is an element in almost every single action movie, it seems whether or not it's a, you know, whether or not you're talking about Fast and the Furious, which are, you know, like career criminals, or you're talking about an ex a spy or an ex spy, or whether you're talking about a member of the military or the police force, it's all that it's all couched under the terms of going rogue. And so the idea is, is that, you know, the the current order is in unable or incapable or unwilling to deal with it and so you have to become a vigilante essentially go rogue from the sort of credo credo of your organization and kill the people that need to be killed but and but you see this in almost everything almost everything has this element at the same time i'd say it's different when say james bond does it than when family man does it in these things sure and i think speaking about this very specific kind of of uh fiction where it is about a regular guy who uh, encounters some kind of trauma and his response to that trauma is to direct violence at criminals. Um, there is that we can't deny that the element of the, the genre, there's sort of this dad fiction, the sort of people that feel that the world is broken, like you said, mm-hmm. and that the, the sort of civilized part of our nature is not good enough to deal with the animals. And what that event and, uh, sort of leads to is essentially usually a middle-aged white protagonist killing um generally people of color <laughs> in these movies that it's usually somebody who lives in a big house the sort of house that a character in like a john hughes movie lives in <laughs> driving out of their cushy neighborhood into an urban environment and shooting drug dealers because that world invaded their world and well, I mean, there is an ugly part of that, and there are ways to get around it. If you're going to remake Death Wish and you don't want well, those man, connotations, Man on Fire is the great is the best way to do it, I think. Yeah, well, right? having having a non-white protagonist goes a long way to undermine that kind of shit. What? Let's just remake Death Wish as a hypothetical thing now. What yeah. if it was Denzel Washington or Forrest Whitaker or Samuel L. Jackson as your lead character? Right off the bat, it pulls away from the typical good in parentheses white guy with a gun and makes it different refocus it what if his family you just, was... but you might have just alienated your core audience there i don't know it's it's like yeah I maybe know. there was plenty of i'm sure there were plenty of middle-aged white guys lining up to watch every single tony scott movie that had denzel washington being the vigilante hero um so i don't i mean maybe i don't know but i, I mean know. let's let's just if you're gonna make it to be about something and you want to dodge not to have that pun but this right. bullet um Let's say, let's say, okay, let's say Paul Kersey is a doctor, that he's a, without getting into the connotations of this kind of ugliness and avoiding this digression, let's say he's a Dr. Huxtable type. Sure. Where he's sort of a lovable goof 
that has a big family, lots of kids, and he's been very successful. And then the Death Wish scenario happens where there's like a home invasion and it kills his family. And let's say that it's it's uh, white supremacists. Immediately, we have changed the focus of this movie from being um, uh, about sort of let's direct it at sort of scary, you know, black guys with loud music in their car being the thing that I'm afraid of uh, to being about fucking Nazis. And right off the bat, you've refocused this movie in a way where you can avoid a lot of the ugly political connotations that you had before that are inevitable when it's a white guy going into the inner city. Um, and you can still have a lot of the same kind of, you know, visceral punch in the face, fuck yeah moments that come with seeing Forrest Whitaker's, you know, shotgun a guy's face off. <laughs> and it's all still there, but it's like you have to also realize that we live in a world now where it's a lot harder for people to have a movie about somebody being a gun wielding vigilante and for it to be apolitical. You just You're not allowed to be apolitical. You just don't anymore. get it, do you, Mike? Is that these movies are about wish fulfillment. That's the that is the idea about the death wish. Is that and maybe this is why you couldn't maybe why it has to be Man on Fire if it is Denzel Washington and the bad guys are the you know Mexican cartel or whatever. Yeah. Um it has to be about a kind of a wish fulfillment and the wish fulfillment as is focused in 2017, 2018 is that exact sort of structure. But you also like with man on fire, if you make the main character, somebody whose whose progression through the story is also their self-destruction, then sure. Then you actually, then that has to be part of it. That that's the part that treats it like it's not a video game. Right. That this is a person who's paying the cost for taking lives and the psychic toll that that takes on him. Where you just don't get it, do you, Mike? Yeah. Shooting people is fun. Yeah. Apparently, you just don't get it, do you? But I mean, again, it's again the Walter White thing. Is yeah. That you have to have the transformation from this being a thing that's hard for him to being a thing that's easy for him and showing that this is a thing that damages him, that he's killing people, but he's damaging himself at the same point. And that there's a point where there's no going back and that he can't live in the world that he lived in before. I think it, it does have, no matter how you frame it, or, or I think there are elements that they should change, but it does end up being political in, in one sense or not. Uh, even killing Nazis these days, this, you know, not everybody's on board with that. It's politically contentious. What? Some really? of them, are, some of them, I assume, are good people. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you let me know when you find one. I yeah. always thought Nazis were the safest bad guys to ever cast you in think. a movie, a book, or a video game. That it's it's Nazis, robots, so it was, and uh, aliens, aliens. Hey, you can always kill aliens, zombies. So I do think the press sort of seized upon a few tweets to to make this a bigger issue than maybe it really was. But there was a little bit of controversy over... There was a new Wolfenstein video game that came out. And there were people who claimed, all oh, these liberals making a movie about killing Nazis, that's the left attacking the right. Uh, which was, cr- it was crazy that there were people the, who... The, the Wolfenstein video game was about what happened if Germany won. Right. And, and is now basically taking over... You're, you're in America after not, the Nazis have came over. And of course, it f- it features, you know... The KKK being probably the most powerful political force in the United States. And there's like an elderly syphilitic Hitler who's like raving as a villain. And this is the part that I get, I I lose it. This is the part where I go, you know, no, 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 stop. Is when they start going, they're attacking the right. It's like, do you see yourself in that? What (laughs) what about these villains? If we're going to create a, a yeah, fictional... Whenever, whenever us- you're you're in the position to defend fictional Nazis, you know you you know you are in a bad place. But I mean, it's if we're going to play this as us and them, that we're killing the thing that we can all agree is bad, Nazis, 
Hitler. Hitler <laughs> is specifically used, this is what Godwin's Law is, the idea that Hitler is so obviously bad that it's unfair in an argument to compare people to Hitler. We'd all agreed that. <laughs> Hitler is bad. Not all of us agreed that. <laughs> and this idea that somebody would get offended that you're, you're saying Nazis are bad, um, don't you also think Nazis are bad? Can't we come to, I mean, we disagree on healthcare and, and spending, but I think we should be able to agree on Nazis. That these are the bad guys in just about half of the John Wayne movies where he's not a cowboy. You know, I I I think there are I think there are clearly there have been a you know a succession of of uh, sort of Oscar worthy movies over the past twenty five years, sort of starting with I think um, what's this Spielberg? Why can't I remember the Spielberg movie? You're talking about Holocaust Schindler's movie. List. Schindler's List. You know, moving moving forward, like what was the one with the. Uh, Kate Blanchett, it was like the, the the reader or something or something. There is a there is a spectrum of movies that where um, we can cast either their historical figures or their fictional figures, where we can talk about people who are Germans in the time of the Second World War um, in a way that isn't so monolithic. However, when it's an action movie or a first person shooter video game, and there and then not and there are Nazis that you're shooting, I think it's okay. I think we can be fine in saying in every instance. We do not need to worry about offending people who were Germans or people whose family were Nazis or people who right now might be a little sympathetic to the far right. Like, I think we don't need to worry about that. We we have the spectrum, but for action movies and for video games, it's fine. Or to I mean, ex- that's not political commentary. Or to extend that into the regime itself, that how dare you portray Hitler as awful? That's unfair the way you're treating Hitler. I've seen... YouTube comments about this. I'm like, fuck you, it's Hitler. <laughs> you know? But there were good Nazis, right? <laughs> it's no. It, it you is, know is I, that a, is that a is that an oxymoron? It's good just Nazi. A good Nazi, but it's just it's so bizarre. But that's the thing, is it's not just that somebody on the right is saying, you know, oh, these liberals have gone too far. They're saying by attacking this awful Nazi, you're attacking me. I'm not the one equating them to Nazis. Yeah. They are. Yeah. And that's the part where I'm just like, what happened? <laughs> what happened in the last 15 years where we went here? That that also just the, the shift that uh, shows you where we've come to that uh, now the right views Russians so much more positively. It's like that's the bizarre. world has gone mad. All of a sudden, the, the, the right in this country, the far right, wants to plant their flag in ties to Russia and Nazi affiliation, I, I don't. It's it's a, it's. I don't even know it's where, like a, where do old, we go from here. It feels like this is like part of a pollution ad from the 1980s, and Ronald Reagan with a single tear <laughs> going down his cheek. It's just it's so fucking weird. It's this weird, bizarre world that we live in. But I mean. Again, I'm sorry. I, I'm going to jump out. Here's a hot take. Nazis are bad. <laughs> uh, I think you, like I said, I think you always get a pass. And I do not think you could construct a sincere argument that says that if you are making an action movie, it's okay. I mean, let me wind this back. I remember Steven Spielberg saying that after Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which was you know, not the first Indiana Jones movie to make the the villains, monolithic villains out of the Nazis. Spielberg said he would never again make a movie where the Nazis were a comic book villain. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, after Schindler's List, I think he wanted to take it a, a little bit seriously, which I can respect Steven Spielberg's uh, decision to do that. However, there is no downside to making them the, the villain. There's absolutely no downside. 
No it, downside. I fact, cannot see a downside. You know what? The swastika, if it's anything, is permission to not need character development. Because <laughs> once somebody flashes that, I don't need to. Exp- I don't need to understand anything about their character. I just need to see the hero punch them. <laughs> at that point, that's happening in real life too. I think that happened in Seattle. Here, one of those guys was had oh, wearing an armband f- and was doing salutes, and then and yelling racist. This is the part they that they don't punched. leave out. He was yelling a bunch of racist things in the faces of black people. Yeah, and someone decided that they had. It's like, well, I'd like to make my two minute retort. In fact, I only need about a second, <laughs> and and gave I, him five across the eye and dropped him. You know, I. I think, don't tell me to feel bad for that guy. I think I can speak for all of Radio Versus the Martian's family that we don't condone violence. But you know, like we don't we don't con- condone violence. But you sometimes you may be asking for it. Yeah, well, you might be asking for it. There's there's violence and then there's response. This yeah. guy was following people around, harassing them. He got what happens when you follow people around and harass yeah. them with racist bullshit. I don't feel bad about that. Nobody went into his house and punched him. <laughs> so here's a, here's an interesting thing. I think that we have a strong psychological need to see the bad guy punished, and that because of the complex morality and you know postmodern culture of, of our world, the problem is anytime you go looking for a bad guy, you find complex socioeconomic you know terms that complicate what you mean by bad guy. I remember people there was the, the uh, we took out some Somali pirates that were hijacking mm-hmm. a vessel, and it's. It's hard not to be like, well, they kind of get what happens when you try and be pirates. You know, people respond with violence. But people were celebrating this in a way. And But if you really look into the desperation in these humans' lives that leads them to have to, you know, become brigands, that some of them are not, intrin- they're not evil people. Um, what Nazis give us is a real, you, you, can, you can sort of point your finger and say evil. If you really want to look into the situation, people probably ended up, as Nazis for all sorts of reasons. It probably, yeah. but it, it's, because there it, wasn't an option not to be a soldier if you were a certain age. Right. Um, but there's no, because there isn't, I, I don't find a reason to develop empathy for Nazis. And so at least for, for my ideology, it's one of the few, es- safe especially bad guys. not, especially not in America in the 21st century. So, but what else can you think of any others that are, could be safe? Obviously for, you know, movies in the eighties, drug dealers, things like that are Mo- Mongolians, <laughs> usually um, vaguely Eastern European drug Lords, yeah. but I mean, Nazis and stuff like that. I mean, there are, there's a sad story behind all kinds of hatred and, and violence However, I'm not so sympathetic to that sort of sad backstory that I'm not going to not defend myself against things like genocide, yeah. um, racial violence, against things like fascism. I never feel so bad for someone that I'm not going to say that person needs to get knocked on their ass. And after they're defeated, then I'll deal with their economic turmoil. Hmm. Ooh, Warlords of Child Armies. That's a <laughs> yeah. good one. It's like, I'm sure that, you know, maybe he, so he saw horrible things and maybe the person who recruited him as a child soldier made him kill his own puppy. And that's really sad and all, but he fucking burned a village. And there's a point at which I'm just like, fuck that guy. There's a, there's a point at which you are not entirely made by your sad backstory, but you also start contributing choices to it. I, you know, on our uh, on our Quentin Tarantino panel, we talked. You talked about the two kinds of violence that you see in a Tarantino movie, and I think this somewhat maps to violence that you'd see in an action movie. Which One is, is visceral, say, um, satisfying violence, and the other is re- realistic, horrifying violence. And I think that I think the 
I remember talking this way about Django is that there were people who are on the right who were uh, who are dismayed because Django is a guy who takes pleasure in killing white people, right? And so they thought that the message of that was they thought that was a pretty horrendous message. But that was them misattributing what kind of violence is in the in for the tone of the movie. And I think that's you could paint the same thing about uh, the Nazis in the in Wolfenstein Two: The New Colossus, which but is again, you're misattributing the type of violence that you're expected to view this through, especially given that it's a first person shooter video game in a f- alternate world. But again, the thing with with Django Unchained is that he's not indiscriminately killing white people; he is killing white bad people who do unforgivable things either to him directly or to his wife or to people that look exactly like him yeah and that's different than say him like dragging a farmer and his family out and setting their place on fire and shooting them all that's what the clan does (laughs) that's not what he does and the people that he's Killing in that movie do things like that and do dehumanize people and do things like, oh, let's sell him to the mine or, or let's geld him or let's dehumanize him or the, the, the stuff that you see done to him is what gives him the license to do that stuff. And I'm sorry if you're watching that movie and you're horribly offended. I'm sorry. Again, it's that question of why are you offended? Why do you see yourself? In in Leonardo DiCaprio's character, why are you so offended? Somebody's doing a bad thing to him. Do you see what he did? Yeah. I, I mean, that's that's that part of it. Is that, and again, even then, it's a cartoon reality. It's a difference between that and the original Death Wish. Sure, and I I think that there's some there's some irony when we're when there's people who are t- taking a critique of violence in media when those self same people are the type of people who will viciously defend on the lives of dead children your ability to mete out violence with the with the weapons that you purchase and God God help those people who would stand in the way for any way to possibly curtail your ability to have those weapons. Well, it, you know? it goes beyond, there's sort of a greater... Because we love we love violence. I mean, this is, uh, you know, Mike, you know what the, the sort of the politics that Mike and I have, and a lot of parts of the shows that we do is, and a lot of part of our media is about violence, because violence seems to be one of the most sort of dynamic ways that you can add to a story. The danger to a story, or intrigue to a story, is by having violence, but there's something there is something that I think is healthy about our idea to take that violence and to subsume it into fiction so we can we can we can look view it and we can uh, we can process it and sometimes we can even be entertained by it in a, in a fictional space as opposed to in the real space which violence is actually really terrifying you know is actually psychically damaging um so you know we 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 understand that we're a, we're a violent world but i would prefer those to be safely tucked away into a video game you yeah know? I'd, I'd rather play grand theft auto than play it in real life yeah and i think that that's shouldn't a, be controversial but again i guess that thing of like you know how dare you try to blackmail me emotionally with those dead children because i'm having fun over here in real life sort of things yeah that's nothing new because I've seen a version of that attitude that goes beyond guns. It's a general attitude of this is a thing I enjoy that has an aspect that hurts people, that there is some level of, of harm that's being done. And by bringing up that harm, you're, you're hurting my fun. And I'd rather just not know about it, whether it's people that tell uh, football players that they need to shut the fuck up about uh, concussions 
because I'm trying to watch the fucking game. And it's like, but this is affecting somebody's life. Your enjoyment is coming from a thing that's doing some level of harm. Yeah. And these conversations will allow you to enjoy it and cut out that harm yeah. that do things to protect these players because they're human beings and not game pieces. Yeah, I, I have the same thought about uh, crunch crunch time over time with video game developers as well because that, that, that's actually that's actually a real thing about uh, the, the, the physical and sort of social toll that the, the whole industry places on places on people who are in it and then we don't we of course do not see the ramifications of that when we're enjoying our triple a game experience you know remember the the was it the the tsunami that hit um japan years ago there was a website called um was it literally unbelievable which is people getting upset and, and posting things on social media and people being fucking awful. And one of the things was this kid going, you know what? You know what? I get it. You're sad. You're sad. All these people died in that fucking hurricane. Can I just get my Pokemon game already? <laughs> what? It was Jesus one of, I forget the exact quote, but it was somebody basically going, yeah, I understand that people died, but you got a fucking deadline and I was pre-ordered this thing. <laughs> it's the same thing that every time somebody like uh, Jack Kirby or any other creator tries to get royalties because they created fictional characters like the X-Men or Captain America and they want to be able to have enough food to eat so they don't die while the company that they made this thing for is making billions of dollars and hey how can I not die over here with this thing that I gave you um and they will often sue the company to be able to get some kind of just compensation and there will be fans who will say how dare you all you're doing with this thing is possibly taking away my ability to get a steady stream of this thing I enjoy <laughs> I don't care how Steve Ditko is traded uh, was treated by Marvel Comics and the fact that he's living on very limited means right now. I don't want his lawsuit to get in the way of my steady stream of, of Spider-Man comics, even sure. though he created a character that is probably made them trillions of dollars if you counted in all the party plates and toys and things. <laughs> and it's just fucking unfair. But again, we just say, like, you know what? I don't care about the exploitation quality of any of this stuff because I just want to enjoy it and dehumanize people. And it's important to have those conversations. Yes, I mean, we're pretty good at ignoring uh, exploitation and human suffering that's out of sight. Uh, it's it's definitely yeah. a skill of, of humanity. One thing I'll say, we do, as much as we love our violence, uh, we do appreciate simulated violence more. We live in an age where you can ha you have unprecedented access to videos of people dying. Yeah. If you want to see real violence and real pain and real suffering, nope. it's <laughs> out there. But you, you see, you're you're in the majority. It turns out yeah, it used most to, it people... used to be you need to rent you know Faces of Death three from that part of the video store <laughs> it was where always all the a, porn is. The scary but, kid who had like a shuriken that would right. be into that shit in high <laughs> but, school. But now you could do it. Uh, you could just you could, within fifteen seconds you could be watching people dying until you you couldn't mm, take yeah, it anymore. Th there is there is know? a subreddit you know oh, like is there? Um, oh, watch people die. Right. Well, uh, yeah. Well, there's is that the there, jokey there, one. There's a joke one. Yeah. But there are <laughs> there, there are places that you can you can find that content um, pretty easily, and it turns out that most people don't want to watch snuff. It turns yeah. out that most people love action movies, want to see cars flip and explosions, and people get all shot up. But if you gave them the option to see that for real, it's like fuck no, I don't want to. And so we one of the things that gets levied at uh, violent video games, for example, is that people won't be able to tell the difference. That it will it will make it may normalize violence. Pretty to the fucking point that easy to tell the difference if you've ever seen it. Pretty easy. 
Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. I pledge allegiance to Adolf Hitler. I pledge allegiance to Adolf Hitler. The immortal leader of our race. The immortal leader of our race. To the order for which he stands. And to the order for which he stands. One great cause. One great cause. Sacred and invincible. Sacred and invincible. Hey, what's going on? Ah, those bums won their court case, so they're marching today. What bums? The fucking Nazi party. Illinois Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis.